I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. U.S.-China strategic competition dominates global attention. And though characterized by some as a new Cold War, the structural dynamics differ from the old Soviet-U.S. framework. The foundations of the current geopolitical contest emerge not from the crucible of war and isolation, as did the East-West Cold War competition, but from an era of rapidly expanding globalization of the assertion that economics was the primary display of power, uh, and of a belief, however unfounded, that Western liberalism had won, and it was the inevitable path of international interactions. But as British geographer Sir Halford Mackinder noted, democracy refuses to think strategically unless and until compelled to do so for purposes of defense. Uh, And we have seen the United States now swing around and change the way it looks at its relationship with China. The very era of Western victory um, in the Cold War not only provided the space for China's emergence as a rising power, but also delayed the U.S. recognition and response to that challenge. Joining me today to discuss the origins and implications of U.S.-China strategic competition is Zoltan Ferrer, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and an associate research fellow at the Hungarian Institute for Foreign Affairs and Trade. A member of the Hungarian Diplomatic Corps for more than a decade, Zoltan is currently completing his doctoral dissertation on the origins of U.S.-China strategic competition at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Tufts University. Zoltan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Roger. So uh, let's kind of begin. uh, Why did you decide that you wanted to be looking at U.S.-China competition, in particular, trying to dig back to figure out the origins of that competition. I've always been interested in great power competition, strategic competition. I've always focused on that um, issue, phenomenon in my research. Um, Earlier, I focused on U.S.-Soviet competition, uh, the origins of the Cold War, the origins of the uh, U.S. containment strategy. And then when I was deciding on my PhD dissertation topic uh, several years ago at the Fletcher School, I was considering a topic uh, within the realm of strategic competition, great power competition. And the major puzzle that I saw then was how U.S.-China strategic competition emerged, why the United States supported China's rise before it realized that China was becoming more of a strategic competitor uh, than a strategic partner. I thought that was a puzzle that hasn't really been solved, and I wanted to look into that. When you look at the, and you've looked at both the origin of the Cold War, the U.S.-Soviet competition, and the origin of U.S.-China strategic competition, uh, what would be some of the key similarities and key differences that you see between those two uh, eras of, of strategic framing? The key similarities between U.S.-Soviet 
strategic competition and U.S.-China strategic competition are structural. Um, we've seen this time and again in human history. Uh, there is a status quo power, the hegemon, the established great power, whatever you want to call it. And there's other powers that are rising or one other power that is rising. We've, we've seen that uh, time and again. Um, and uh, U.S.-Soviet and U.S.-China competition evolved, both evolved that way. Um, the United States um, was um, the hegemon, the established or status quo great power um, in the 1940s. And the Soviet Union was rapidly challenging that position of the United States. Um, the same is happening now or has been happening for the past uh, few decades. Uh, the U.S. is uh, the status quo power, uh, the number one power in the world. Uh, China's been rising and has been challenging that. So those are the similarities. There are major differences, though. The Soviet Union did not rise primarily economically. Yes, they achieved great economic growth compared to uh, the economic level that they were after the, um, after the end of the First World War. But their major um, way of rising was um, militarily and politically. China has risen economically, and most modern rising powers have risen economically. The United States rose economically in the latter part of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So that is a major difference and also a major difference between the current situation and the Cold War is um, the presence of two blocks of states evolving in the beginning of the Cold War um, with the, the Soviet bloc or the Soviet communist bloc and the so-called free world. Today, the evolution of such blocks is unlikely, although there is a growing division um, in the um, approach to China among Western states and their allies. Um, but the kind of Cold War with the two power blocks uh, on one side on, and the other um, is not going to repeat itself. Well, and that, that, you know, taking us back to the end of the Cold War, um, and to looking at those different origin, you know, origin stories, uh, as it were. Um, if you think about it, the, the U.S.-Soviet competition emerges um, after two devastating world wars. Um, the, the collapse of the global economic system, um, the beginning of the demise of uh, the last of the empires and colonial powers. And, and in some ways, the United States built with its European allies an entirely new global economic architecture that had a political, social, ideological overtones. And the Soviets sought at the same time to build a their own global architecture. And in some ways, you started from a moment where there was a reset of the global system. The end of the Cold War doesn't seem... Uh, to fundamentally reset the system uh, as much as it saw an expansion of what the United States and the Europeans had started after World War II, um, and even from pre-World pre War II, uh, and China was 
part of that. And so the from the beginning, the Chinese were integrated into the global economic system that the United States had set up. And that actually facilitated China's growth rather than uh, constrained it. Um, you look at the the sort of your when you're looking at the origin of the U.S.-China competition, you go back to this moment of the end of the Cold War. Um, what was it that shaped, I guess, U.S. optimism that everybody would be be like them, or that China would not emerge as a competitive power? And and how did that idea persist? Um, long after many people started to identify China as uh, either the future or the present peer competitor? As you correctly identified, the United States wanted to integrate China since the China opening uh, of 1972, initiated by um, President Nixon and National Security Advisor Kissinger. Um, they wanted to integrate China into the so-called U.S.-led liberal international order. That was always uh, the, the ambition, and that's what really um, created the engagement strategy that I believe started in earnest uh, during the Reagan years. And the, the, the goal of the engagement strategy or the logic of the engagement strategy was that U.S. support for China's global economic integration will lead eventually to uh, China's liberalization internally and externally, including China's full embrace of the values and principles of the liberal international order. And now we come to the end of the Cold War. As you mentioned, uh, that's where my project starts. Um, this is 1989, and uh, the United States finds itself in a uh, totally changed international environment. Uh, the Soviet Union's power is waning. Um, the Soviet bloc is collapsing that year. Uh, the Soviet Union collapses two years later in 1991. Uh, the United States becomes the sole superpower in this process. And China's rise is uh, in its budding, fledgling phase. Um, there are signs already that China is achieving unprecedented economic growth. And that growth was fueled by two factors, really. The first was uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, market reforms starting in 1979. The other factor was U.S. support for embracing China as a full member of the international economic system. Uh, the U.S. almost single-handedly integrated China into the world economy. And at the end of the Cold War, the, the situation is this. Um, the United States um, has a de facto ally in China against the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union is disappearing. So that um, factor, that logic of the alliance um, is falling out. Um, the other um, and somewhat, um, is somewhat renewed uh, commitment by the United States is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, to China's liberalization. Uh, the United States sees both the countries of the former Soviet bloc in Central and Eastern Europe, and also China as um, potentially future democracies, market economies. And that's what happens in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, the, the countries uh, of the former Soviet bloc start their path uh, on to becoming 
of full-fledged liberal democracies and market economies. It's, it's a long and winding road, but they start their path in earnest in 1989. Uh, that, those were the hopes for uh, China in the minds of US decision makers. The United States wanted to see China liberalize and the George H.W. Bush administration was the first in a row of administrations um, that um, embraced that um, old slash new strategy, a strategy that they inherited from the Cold War, but they decided to continue. And you ask why, why they would continue or renew that strategy, the engagement strategy. Um, I argue that it was an ideational factor. It was an, an ideational, almost ideological commitment on the part of uh, U.S. elites starting in 1989, um, what I call the liberal ordering mission um, that drove that strategy, the engagement strategy, that drove the strategy that the U.S. pursued even against um, more and more evidence that that um, the results that that strategy was supposed to create were not forthcoming. So, so this gets us to an interesting point when we think about, you know, when we when we look at things from a grand geopolitical point of view, and you see these patterns emerge in, in the global system, and the idea of China as a competitor. Um, quite frankly, the idea of China potentially emerging as a competitor goes all the way back to Mahan in geopolitical thought um, and and the the looking just at raw population capacity um, things of that sort so there it's always there in that structural geopolitical perception but then there is the the slow evolution of strategic culture um, and that the you know as as you note and we see this certain patterns and tools that were uh, shaping strategic culture in the Cold War at the end of the Cold War either persist or are reinforced sometimes by wishful thinking, sometimes by simply not considering the overall implications of the change in the global system. Um, what, what accounts for that persistence of ideas and resistance to change, um, and are there structural elements in the U.S. strategic community, whether inside uh, the government or in the civil space, that that in some ways constrain alternate viewpoints from being able to assert themselves until it's it's long past um, obvious. As I argue in my project, and as you correctly pointed out, it is American liberal strategic culture that is primarily responsible for the continuation of the U.S. engagement strategy vis-a-vis -vis China in the, um, the post-Cold War period. American liberal strategic culture's persistence in that period uh, goes back to two factors. The first is the embeddedness of U.S. strategic thinking in this liberal framework. This goes back to the founders. Uh, and this has characterized uh, U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy uh, throughout 
uh, the American experiment uh, throughout the past um, two, and, um, two and a half centuries. American strategic culture, liberal strategic culture, uh, is committed to a, a world um, that is open, um, that um, embraces free trade, uh, democratic values, market values, human rights, that puts uh, in the forefront diplomacy uh, rather than war, um, cooperation rather than conflict. And this American liberal strategic culture is a historical heritage. Um, the other factor is um, more contemporaneous. The era in which new strategies of the United States were born uh, after the end of the Cold War was characterized by even a heightened effect, a heightened influence of liberal strategic culture. At the end of the Cold War, there was a sentiment um, well captured by Francis Fukuyama's End of History paper in Foreign Affairs in the summer of 1989 that, that we have won, that the liberal democratic model, the capitalist model has won, um, that um, we have arrived in an era of globalization and interdependence, and we just have to cooperate and everyone's going to get rich. And we're just going to cooperate and everyone's going to get rich and there will be no great power conflict. This is the euphoria of the end of the Cold War and uh, what Charles Krauthammer called uh, the unipolar moment. The United States' victory uh, in the international system and the victory of all the principles and values um, that the United States um, holds dear. And in this euphoria was um, born uh, the engagement strategy toward China and all of the other strategies um, that were uh, created at the time. Um, let's remember the New World Order by George H.W. Uh, Bush or enlargement and engagement by Bill Clinton. Um, these all can be traced back to um, this very optimistic, um, idealistic, uh, Wilsonian outlook of American liberal strategic culture that um, inspired the strategy toward China as well. It's interesting, if you look through this post-Cold War historical period, that at the same time that there's this um, assertion that the liberal Western ideals have won and therefore are inevitable and universal, that that conflict is not the right way to solve problems, that trade will trump all, um, there are also periods where another lingering component of the Cold War, the use of military intervention in small peripheral places frequently, which during the Cold War was designed to prevent a shift in the overall global balance of power, but post-Cold War seems to continue to be used as a tool almost to assert um, the right of Western liberalism. And so you see these contrary patterns that are moving back and forth in that early post-Cold War period where there's still a lot of the United States using its military as a tool of foreign policy and intervention um, to, to, you know, for 
for democracy or for rights or for self-determination, and at the same time arguing that economics is the dominant force and that everyone needs to come in there. And we get a really interesting moment then where I would argue at the at the George um, W. Bush administration, at the beginning of that administration, where China has joined the WTO, there is this sort of recognition that emerges um, and, and you get some of the old Cold Warriors coming back in, say, looking at it and identifying China as that rising threat. And the very first crisis of that administration is, of course, the EP3 incident along the Chinese coastline. And there's an expectation of the United States at that moment asserting that pushback against China. And 9-11 hits and the whole... Um, counter momentum to China is is basically wiped out. It's it's thrown aside um, and doesn't reemerge, uh, you know, in in national sort of emphasis almost until the Trump administration. I mean, it's there and it's rising and it's it's quiet, but it's seen as a contrary point in the Trump administration. It really takes place um, as that as that return force or that that counter force. Um, in that, it seems that uh, there is there's the U.S. and China, but there's also the rest of the world. And how do you see that that global dynamic, either speeding or slowing uh, the U.S. reaction or the Chinese reaction or counter reactions? And what role does the rest of the world play in this strategic competition? Sure. So first of all, I think you're completely right um, about the different um, strands of uh, American liberalism in um, U.S. foreign policy. Um, they, do take, um, they do take two major forms, um, two major camps. Uh, the first one is the crusader camp, and that's what's exemplified by uh, the highly interventionist um, overall grand strategy of the United States, um, starting uh, with Bill Clinton, um, but especially um, getting to its peak reaching its peak with uh, George W. Bush and uh, the war in terror, the wars um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the other strand is the exemplar strand. They're both part of American liberal strategic culture and their influence waxes and wanes um, even within uh, some administrations. So um, I agree that um, the, the, the crusader impulse uh, inspired uh, a lot of the interventionism of um, early post-Cold War U.S. foreign policy, um, while the same U.S. administrations chose to use the exemplar approach toward China. What's really interesting about um, the history of U.S. strategy vis-a-vis -vis China in the early post-Cold War period, especially starting in the early 90s, um, is that every administration starts out being tough on China, wanting to be tough on China. So Bill Clinton debates George H.W. Bush in the 1992 election campaign and um, accuses him of coddling dictators. And um, befriending the butchers of Beijing is referring to the Tiananmen Square massacre. He promises in the 1992 election campaign that he will be tough on China. 
And then once in office, um, he ends up doing the, the opposite. Um, it's been called the biggest turnaround in American foreign policy. The same th thing happens with George W. Bush. As you mentioned, the George W. Bush administration um, in the transition period and in its first um, several months in office in 2001 comes in with a um, with a stance on China that would um, be much tougher than the Clinton administrations, who, by the way, uh, proclaimed strategic partnership with China um, in 1997. So they, they softened uh, their stance and went back to um, uh, the default strategy of engagement. So George W. Bush um, and his advisors come in with um, a much tougher stance in China, ready to balance against China, seeing how China had been rising uh, into a potential um, major competitor. And then 9-11 happens. I've conducted interviews with top policymakers in each of these administrations. And um, from one of uh, these policymakers, I received the early versions, early drafts of the uh, George W. Bush National Security Strategy of 2002. So the drafting started in 2001 and was completed in 2002. And the early versions do show that um, the George W. Bush administration wanted to recognize China as a strategic competitor rather than a strategic partner um, considered by the Clinton administration. And then 9-11 happens and the the grand strategy uh, the new grand strategy of the united states is formed in the crucible of the 9-11 terrorist attacks uh, the grand strategy um, is now focused on the war on terror the war on terror becomes the grand strategy of the united states and china not just becomes a lower priority but becomes a partner in the war on terror what happened is chronicled um, both in my dissertation book project and in Paul Bluestein's schism. Um, the economic advisors of the George W. Bush administration recognized that um, uh, there was a phenomenon threatening uh, the U.S. economy and U.S. manufacturing, which has since been referred to as the China shock. So they several times advised George W. Bush to institute safeguards, um, import safeguards against certain Chinese goods to protect U.S. manufacturing industries. And in the framework of both the grand strategy of the United States and the trade policy at that time and its continuation of the engagement strategy vis-a-vis -vis China, President Bush declined. He declined three times, so the economic advisors never went back to propose safeguards against the China shock. So, so this brings us, let's leap to today, right? And we have, um, you know, from, a, from a, 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 an outside-in perspective, there's a fundamental difference between the administration of President Biden and the administration of President Trump. Um, and a significant difference in the way in which each president 
uh, portrays themselves, sets their priorities, um, looks at things. And, and a major difference in the back end of the, the entire policy-making apparatus of the two, the two presidencies. And yet both of them now have this much stronger uh, stance on China. What was it about the Trump administration that that either allowed the underlying perception of China as a potential partner to shift finally and fully to a competitor, um, or if not the administration, what was it about the evolution of the United States and China and the world system that made this uh, what appeared to be a sharp change in U.S. policy um, become now the perpetual framework of U.S. policy despite changing administrations? Having looked at the history of U.S.-China relations and U.S. strategy toward China since 1989, I argue that every administration since 1989, since the end of the Cold War, from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, recognized the potential challenges that China's rise posed to the United States at the time. Obviously, that challenge was much smaller uh, during George H.W. Bush's administration than uh, later and much, much larger during the Obama administration when China, I would say, had already risen. Based on that recognition, every administration considered injecting elements of balancing into their strategy, into the engagement strategy, or even shifting the engagement strategy toward balancing. And every such attempt by different decision makers within administrations, there was always debate within each administration. So every attempt by certain decision makers, certain policy advisors to shift U.S. strategy toward balancing eventually failed. So I argue that the shift toward balancing instituted by the Trump administration in 2017, 2018, was a step that should have been taken much earlier, was a step that some U.S. policy advisors proposed earlier, um, let's remember uh, the Obama administration's pivot, or we have just mentioned the George W. Bush administration, um, the incoming George W. Bush administration's intention to label China as a strategic competitor. They came into office in 2001, yet we had to wait another 16 years for the U.S. government uh, to label China what it has been for a while, which is strategic competitor. So I argue that, you know, what the Trump administration did in 2017, calling China a strategic competitor for the first time uh, in an official document in the national security strategy uh, was just a step that should have been taken uh, much earlier. Um, the Trump administration simply recognized that that shift, that that labeling of strategic competitors signified a shift towards 
balancing in U.S. strategy um, had to be taken. Um, they couldn't wait any longer. It was really just upon the recognition uh, that it, the U.S. and China had already been in a um, strategic competition uh, relationship. Um, and I argue that China's always competed. They've competed since 1989. And the United States practically only started competing in, in 2017. Now, I agree with you that um, there are differences, key differences between the approaches of the Trump and Biden administrations. And yet, I, I also agree that um, they've both had a tougher stance on China uh, than the previous administrations. I would say that the shift towards balancing a new strategy toward China that the Trump administration launched in 2017 has now become a permanent part of U.S. grand strategy. Uh, U.S. grand strategy now is focused um, primarily on great power competition with China. Again, this was just a recognition uh, of the facts on the ground. And the Biden administration has continued that policy of balancing against China because nothing's really changed in the relationship um, between the United States and China. But they've continued that balancing strategy uh, with a key difference. As we remember, the Trump administration was very suspicious um, or um, reluctant um, toward uh, the allied relationships of the United States, both formal and informal. And um, they questioned the value of NATO and some of the bilateral um, security alliances of the United States. Therefore, they couldn't really rely on the allies and partners of the United States around the world uh, to embrace the balancing strategy vis-a-vis um, -vis China. The Biden administration, on the other hand, has recognized that in order to be effective in balancing against China and shaping China's trajectory, uh, they do need the allies. They do need the partners. So they don't want to go it alone. They want to balance against China um, with the help of the allies and partners. So the, the, there's a lot more to, to tease apart here, but we're pushing up against time. Um, clearly, as you've looked at this, uh, you, you've looked at it with the eye on policy, policy implications and things of that sort. But, I, but I'd like to close uh, with, with one question for you. Um, and if you if you could, what are the lessons learned, not necessarily for policymakers, but for those who are outside of the active policy circle, who are trying to observe and anticipate shifts in these geopolitical relations so that they can adapt and adjust, whether they're engaged in business, whether they're engaged in international education, whether they're engaged in those. So rather than from the point of view of what should a policymaker do, um, what have you sort of discerned from this study in how others from the outside of the policy circle can anticipate when these types of structural shifts may emerge in these big strategic relationships? I believe that one of the main lessons 
from the history of U.S.-China relations and of U.S. strategy vis-a-vis -vis China in the past 50 years is exactly that point. Um, the lack of anticipation, the lack of foresight. Um, it's hard because China did rise rather quickly, much quicker um, than uh, great powers had risen in previous eras. Um, at the same time, China's rise um, could always be recognized um, at the different phases, which means that the West or the world wanted to turn a blind eye to that aspect. And that goes for policymakers and businessmen and, and other obser observers that you mentioned. The main lesson is that we need to be cognizant of the trends and not just be um, preoccupied with uh, the top tier of geopolitics um, or um, the world economy. So right now we are somewhat preoccupied with uh, US-China competition and with the Ukraine war. So US-Russia competition as well. Um, we need to go below. Um, and we also need to have a geopolitical outlook. Um, after all, what geopolitics teaches us is we have to look at the map. We have to look at the entire world. We have to see where the different um, centers of power are rising. Um, I think for United States policymakers and business leaders and other observers, um, it's really, really a strong lesson that um, colloquially, in a colloquial way, we missed China's rise meaning the U.S. kept supporting China, kept facilitating China's economic rise when China was becoming a competitor to the United States. Who does that, right? Um, but it's happened, and the West, the rest of the, the Western family of countries, both in Western Europe and in East Asia, were partners to that. Um, they missed China's rise, so to say. So the lesson is we need to look for potential risers um, and we also need to be ready to embrace a more multipolar world. Um, the lesson is also that countries can rise really quickly. Um, we have a few potentials that I always um, warn um, policymakers and academics and others to watch out for, um, I think. From a United States strategic perspective, um, potential risers could be India, the European Union. Obviously, Russia is not a rising state, but it's still an adversary. Um, so those are the power centers that um, we, need to, we need to be cognizant of. Again, geopolitics matters. Um, it's not just the competition of two powers that matters. Uh, during the Cold War, all attention went to uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, there are two blocks, the Soviet bloc and the free world. And China's rise was really undercover in a way. So what we need to do now is um, use a geopolitical lens to be cognizant of the trends um, below the, uh, the top level. Um, because um, in today's globalized and interdependent economy, 
economic rise can be really quick and economic rise can breed political and military rise as we've seen with the rise of china well that, that there's a whole bunch to bite off there we don't have time today but that lays us a, a path for a future discussion and and one of the things i think that that comes across too from what you've laid out is that there is a a persistence of perceptional geopolitics that sometimes fails to recognize the underlying objective shifts in geopolitics and and if we can understand the gap between that perception and the underlying reality perhaps we'll be able to anticipate when the uh the the objective will exceed the ability of the perceptive to see things uh in an older light and and be able to anticipate shifts and changes in the future so so i really want to thank you zoltan for for joining me today um you, you know the history is very fascinating um, not just from the perspective of understanding the past, but of thinking about the way in which uh, relationships between states evolve in the roles of individuals, administrations, but also in those deeper trends, as you bring out, that ultimately are the playing field upon which these individual actors um, exist and ultimately can't ignore. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Roger. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Zoltan Ferrer, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and an associate research fellow at the Hungarian Institute for Foreign Affairs and Trade. His current focus is on the emergence of U.S.-China strategic competition. If you would like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting global geopolitical balances, visit RainNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.